Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Frequently in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we spend a fair amount of time discussing representation and what it means. And we discuss barriers to addressing gaps in representation. In this episode, we're going to spend a significant amount of time discussing a journey, as we typically do. But I think what I certainly ask our listeners to consider are the opportunities around what good looks like in addressing gaps in representation. In this particular instance, gaps in women in clinical leadership roles, but also what good looks like in terms of getting the right level of support, helping to not only acknowledge, um, but also reinforce many of the things that we've mentioned in prior episodes regarding mentorship, sponsorship, uh, and simply ongoing support. We're going to speak to uh, an exceptionally talented leader who, despite having an exceptional academic record, remain challenged for a variety of different reasons that you'll hear about in the episode, but also what it took to be able to allow her to succeed uh, and achieve what she's been able to do in her career thus far. So we'll jump straight into the episode. So uh, welcome back to Crossing the Chasm, and uh, I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Nicole Schneider. Uh, Just a little bit of background about Dr. Schneider. She is a graduate of Yale University, uh, as well as the University of California, San Francisco, uh, completed her Master's of Health Administration, the University of uh, Southern California, and uh, she is an internal medicine physician, hospitalist, uh, fellow colleague, Uh, She's had a tremendous career within healthcare in a number of administrative roles, including currently serving as the Chief Medical Officer for Adventist Health in Simi Valley. Uh, So welcome, Nicole. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. So uh, as we ask everybody, Nicole, we want to hear a little bit about your story and your journey. How'd you get where you are? And um, just start there. Okay. Well, um, I'm one of those people who wanted to be a doctor from birth. So I always knew I was going to be a doctor, um, started on my path um, in, I took, let's see, um, went to college, went to medical school, continued on my track. Um, In medical school, I think one of the first things that happened was I had this wonderful mentor. Her name was um, Dr. Barbara Stagger. She worked at Children's Oakland. And so I had been kind of wondering sort of where I fit in at medical school. And she was um, just such a wonderful mentor and partner. And I got very focused on um, adolescent medicine because that's what she did. I worked in her teen clinic there, actually took a year off in the middle of medical school, um, which is something that was supported by my medical school. And um, 
I worked in the teen clinic. I did some clinical research. I actually helped start a school-based health center in Oakland, did some on-site case management for high-risk teens in Oakland, and it was an amazing experience. Um, and so that's how I kind of decided to end up doing um, actually internal medicine with my goal being adolescent health to continue on in that path. Um, so then I, I did my residency and actually, um, also continued doing a little work with adolescent health. I actually got a job at the Los Angeles Department of Public Health, um, and I was going to do that part time after I finished um, residency, but couldn't quite figure out the schedule. Um, and so that's how I jumped into hospitalist work because of the shift work. I thought, hey, I can work at the Department of Public Health and be a hospitalist at the same time didn't quite work out as planned, but I also love my career as a hospitalist um, and the flexibility that it's given me. And so I um, started doing hospitalist work. And um, after a few years, I was like, hey, wait a minute, what's next? You know, I was one of those people who was super goal directed. I was going to be a doctor, went on my path. And then all of a sudden, here I was, I was a doctor, kind of figured it out, thought I was doing pretty well at the practice of medicine. And then I figured out what's next. And so that's when I started thinking about getting into leadership. Um, and so one of the things actually that happened that really kind of fired me up on the leadership path was I was working at uh, um, academic tertiary care medical center as part of a large physician group, and they were looking to promote some people to be um, leaders within the organization. Um, and I was passed over and I wondered why. And I found out after the fact, um, someone told me it was because I was pregnant, so they didn't offer it to me because they thought I wasn't going to be interested. Um, so I was not thrilled by that, as you can imagine. And so what I ended up doing was um, I went into my director's office and I remember I had just come back from a conference, the Society of Hospital Medicine, and I had all these grand ideas and I was like six months pregnant and I stormed into his office and I was like, I want to be in leadership. I have a project. This is what I'm going to do. He was like, okay. And so I actually helped start a post-discharge clinic. Um, I started it before I left. I actually finished it <laughs> while I was on maternity leave. And that was kind of my entry into leadership. Um, and ultimately, I decided to leave that organization, and that's when I took my first official leadership role um, with Sound Physicians, actually at a hospital medicine program um, as a medical director of the group. Um, and then from there, I was actually um, promoted pretty rapidly. Um, I was a regional medical director managing multiple programs across Southern California and Las Vegas. And then I moved up into the Pacific Northwest um, as a chief medical officer managing programs across an entire region. And then I made the transition to sit now on the other side of the table on the hospital administration side. Um, so that's kind of how I got here in a nutshell. It's quite a nutshell and quite a career. <laughs> so uh, obviously we focus here on uh, DEI and healthcare. And so uh, ask the, the obvious next question, which is why is diversity, equity, inclusion important to you? Yeah, so um, it's always been important to me. So I am mixed race. My mom is from Jamaica. My dad is Jewish. Um, and so obviously, um, you know, that's that's been an interesting sort of factor that has always um, been part of my life. Um, I have always been interested in working with the underserved, and that has 
you know, really kind of translated through my career in many ways. Um, I love the adolescent health aspect, as I mentioned before, um, which is really focused on social determinants of health. You know, the clinical practice of adolescent medicine is relatively straightforward, but what makes it a complex and sort of thrilling specialty is being able to address the social determinants of health. Um, you know, I did my training at a county hospital, um, really got to see that firsthand. And then when I transitioned into kind of leadership and more traditional hospital medicine, I still wanted to find a way to sort of um, support um, diversity, um, health equity. And so for me, because it's always been so personal and had such kind of a hands-on impact in the work I was doing, um, I've really leaned into supporting uh, women and people of color and leadership. And so, um, you know, I've had, I actually have numerous stories that I can share about sort of different roadblocks in my way along, uh, you know, along, along my path of leadership. And so I have kind of very intentionally focused on how can I remove those roadblocks um, from those that I work with and how can I bring um, people along, give them a seat at the table and give them a voice, which I feel is really valuable. So terrific. And you, you absolutely set up what I wanted to ask next um, beautifully because you know, there are lots of articles, uh, old Harvard Business Review uh, articles, as well as uh, articles in the uh, uh, AAMC about uh, the fact that really about only a third of leadership positions in uh, in uh, clinical medicine are filled by women. And uh, so I, I have to ask you, you know, given the fact that you've had an amazing career in a relatively short period of time. Um, you know, you discuss roadblocks. We want to hear those stories uh, very clearly, but um, maybe the stories are, are you know, uh, allude to is, are you different or, or <laughs> you know, are, are what's real about those roadblocks and how are you doing things to, to, to help knock those down? Yeah, um, I don't think I'm different, <laughs> but I think, when we think about the pipeline of women in leadership, you know, there's a lot of things we think about, about how do they get discounted? How do they get passed over um, about the maternal responsibilities, the second shift at home? And I think I'm someone who has been very fortunate. I guess I would say I'm someone who, when the system works, this is how you can achieve, but I'm fortunate that the system worked for me in that way. So, you know, you mentioned I went to an Ivy League university, so I obviously, um, you know, had that opportunity to be there. My father is a physician, so, you know, the language of medicine, like this was not unfamiliar to me. This was not something where I had to enter a whole new world, but I can tell you, like, you know, one of the stories I have about um, going to med school, as I as I mentioned, um, I always wanted to be a doctor. I've always been a strong student. And the process at my Ivy League university when I was applying to medical school, um, because they had so many pre-meds, um, we got assigned a person who would write our recommendation. And so I met this with this woman and she had my grades and my transcript and my extracurriculars and I wrote her an essay. So we sit down. And she goes, okay, well, when I think about people who are going to get into medical school, she's like, it's like a deck of cards. You know, I look at your grades, your extracurriculars, your MCATs. I hadn't taken them yet. And she's like, I look at yours. And she's like, mm, I'm not sure. She's like, for you, I think maybe I would bet my little toe that you'll get into med school. She's like, the guy who was in here before you, she's like, he... Um, 
I'd bet my right arm he'd get into med school. But you, I think maybe my little toe. I like my middle toe, but I'm not sure about you. And this was the woman writing my recommendation for medical school. That was hard. That was really, really hard. Um, I changed where I applied. I had a lot of self-doubt. I was like, how, how am I going to do this? Um, you know, I ended up getting into UCSF, which is a top medical school, but I only applied there because it was a state school, not because I thought I would get in because the person writing my recommendation told me she wow. didn't think I was going to get into medical school. Um, you know, and I kind of mentioned, you know, when I got into UCSF, it, it was hard because, like I said, I, I'm someone who really deeply cares about the underserved and has sort of always had that as a focus. And this is a tertiary academic medical center, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, Dr. Staggers was a true mentor to me, and she's someone who did make me feel welcome, who did make me feel valued, who did make me feel like the things I was interested in are equally as valid as the highly academic um, focused research that you sometimes see. And so these are kind of examples of this is where the process worked. You know, I got the mentor who was able to support me in going in a different direction. So I don't think it was something special in particular about me. I think I was really fortunate to be able to have that. And then, you know, some of the even advancing into higher leadership, another thing that happened to me was, um, you know, I was talking with my boss at the time and he said, what do you want to do with your life? Where do you want to go? And I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll be a CMO of a hospital one day. Um, but I didn't really believe it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so he sent me um, a hospital down the street, had an opening and he said, oh, look, a hospital down the street from you has an opening as a CMO. And I applied and I didn't get it. I got to the final round and it was me and another person um, who ultimately got it. And I didn't feel too bad because this this woman had actually been a CMO longer than I'd been a physician at that time. So I was like, OK, <laughs> I can see the value of experience here. But the CEO of the hospital who I interviewed with came to me and she invited me out to breakfast and she said, look, I think you have so much potential. Um, and she said, I really loved you as a candidate and I think you could do a fantastic job um, if you get the chance. And she's like, I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to know that you can do this. Um, I can't tell you how powerful it was to have someone say that to me. It completely transformed how I think about myself as a leader um, to be able to have someone in a leadership position say that to me. And that's something that I've actually carried forward in the people that I work with. I have had that conversation with people and ultimately they've later come back to me and told me how it transformed their vision of their capability um, to be a leader, a female leader in clinical medicine. And so those are the, some of the things where, again, I don't think I'm different, but because I've had those experiences, it really allowed me to have a lot more confidence to keep moving forward. I think, you know, we've spent a lot of time exploring mentorship and sponsorship um, mm -hmm. in the podcast. And I think 
certainly for me, hearing that reinforced in somebody who's had such, uh, again, an, a, an amazingly successful career to this point, because you've got more to do, um, is uh, is fabulous to hear. Um, I, I really want to dig into, you know, you, you again mentioned barriers before, and I don't want to overly focus on those. But I think, you know, there's a lot in the literature with respect to a number of the things that you mentioned. You you mentioned like childbearing responsibilities, child raising responsibilities, second shift, like for some of our listeners who may not necessarily be as familiar with those, tell us what your thoughts are on those and, you know, your thoughts, at least what your experience has been in overcoming those. Yeah, um, I mean, so, that's the understanding that females of childbearing age get looked at differently when we're getting hired. Um, and I actually, I have more stories about that because it happened to me when the first time I got pregnant, um, my boss, I was, I was the third woman that he had hired into this large medical group. And he looked at me and he literally said, that's why I don't hire women. Um, I mean, these are, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not like this happened, you know, 25 years ago. This happened like recently. So this is, geez. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, and so we joke about this, but these are real things that are happening. Um, the perception when you are a young female leader trying to, um, <clears throat> you know, trying to establish herself as a physician, trying to establish herself as a leader, trying to, you know, even outside of medicine, um, how people look at you, how people think about your expectations and your potential. Um, You know, the second shift for those who don't know is just understanding that women, despite um, all the progress that we've made, are still expected to do the majority of childcare and um, care around the home. And that's a very real thing. I think one of the things for me that I've been very fortunate is I had a partner who was willing to take on a lot of that work. Um, And I think that if you don't have that, it really can be difficult to navigate the demands of a challenging career as well as um, the demands at home. And it's, you know, that fine line where you never feel that you're successful in any arena. And how do people navigate that? Um, there was another story that I wanted to tell. Um, even even just thinking about, because I've been thinking about like the pipeline, because women have made such tremendous advantages uh, advances in medicine, right? You know, we're more than 50% of um, graduates right. of medical school. And where, where do they all go? But it's like a constant stream of microaggressions and um, things that just make you question, why are you here? Why are you in this specialty? Why are you doing what you're doing? Like one of the things I can think of, just just like really common, um, is you know joking about how people don't recognize that you're the doctor when you're in the room. You know, I have totally had stories where I go in and the patient's like, I haven't seen the doctor in three days. And I'm like, I've been seeing you every day, <laughs> you know, and they don't realize you're the doctor. Or I was interviewing someone and I had a male dyad partner with me and I was interviewing a female physician and I was joking with her and I was like, hey, do they know you're the doctor yet? And she's like, oh no, haha. And my male partner was like, is this a thing? Like, is this a real thing? And it's one of those, it's so widespread. But then when you think about it, how do you move into a leadership position when on a consistent basis, 
people are not even respecting your credentials as a female. Like, and one of these things, and I'll admit, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that this is something that I did, but it was super effective and it was kind of a bit of a coping mechanism. When I first started as a um, physician, when sometimes I would speak with consultants, so as hospitalists, you know, we we do a little bit of everything, but we right. really rely on our consultants. And so the technique that I would use is I would go to the consultants and I would say, hey, just for my learning, can you please explain to me why we're doing this care plan instead of this care plan? I know exactly why we were doing it. And I just wanted to make sure that they could walk through it. And by approaching them in that way, we would be able to have the conversation where we could address, you know, the important care plan for the patient, but also recognizing that I'm going to typically, not always, an older male consultant, and that's how I feel I have to approach them to be able to make my point about what I'm doing as a clinician. You know, it's really hard then if you're thinking about someone who works in a hospital getting into hospital leadership, and these are the consultants that you would be leading in a department meeting as a chief medical officer i mean i can i can see i can see the barriers for a lot of people well yeah i mean i know as you're stating that and i'm i'm thinking that certainly you know discussing sort of the additional weight and and i'm i'm at loss for the reference now but uh, but it was brought up by one of our prior panelists like there's additional burden that comes in um, certainly, and you're just articulating what that additional burden is. Like I have fewer you, and I suspect likely many of your female colleagues are coming in with this additional burden of I've got to figure out how I'm going to interact with patients, nurses, peers. Like, yeah, I, you know, at some point in time, I, I, I'm thinking about it. And I'm just like. It sounds like it's pretty hard <laughs> just to show up to work, recognizing that you got to be able to do all of this stuff. And so that, uh, um, uh, thank you for articulating it, but oof, um, <laughs> that's uh, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, you you've been sharing some wonderful stories and want to get into this, but I, I really also want to turn back uh, into you. You said that. Here are, you know, a lot of your career's examples of the process working when <laughs> when it's working for you. I'd love to hear, um, you know, any of your examples. And I know that you brought up Dr. Staggers as one very clear example of a mentor in, in medical school. But are there other areas of the process? And I'll put that in air quotes as, you know, things that you've identified that are really need to be reinforced because again we've talked about mentorship we've talked about sponsorship we've talked about simply the need to identify more folks but what what more specifically worked for you yeah um one of the things i kind of touched on it but it's something that i have done really concretely and it's been really effective um and also actually i think is probably one of those things that also limits kind of women in the pipeline along leadership is the opting out. And so, you know, I referenced yeah. that story at the beginning about how I was passed over for consideration for a leadership position because I was pregnant. And that really, really stuck with me. Um, and when I became a leader, I thought about it. And actually, it is fascinating how often 
um, I opt people out and have to intentionally say, I am not going to opt you out because, you know, I'm in touch with the people that I work with. And I think, you know, you've got a lot on your plate. You know, you may have something going on with your family. You may not be ready for this. And then I don't offer this to them. And so um, I, you know, had someone and and so I've intentionally tried to combat that, but I have a couple examples. Like I have someone who um, I wanted to give a promotion to, and I was 90% positive she was going to turn me down because it was not what she wanted. Um, and I was, I thought I am not going to opt her out. I am going to give her this um, opportunity and let her make the decision. And so I went with her with the opportunity and she turned me down <laughs> as expected. But what she ultimately came back and told me later was just the fact that I had offered it to her, opened her eyes, made her think about it differently. And ultimately she moved into a different, more senior leadership position because she said, now I was thinking of myself differently, that I could be a leader, that I turned down this one position, but maybe I want something different than what I'm doing. And so just that simple act of not opting people out and giving them the choice um, is huge, is huge. And I think that's something that probably a lot of us do unconsciously and is something that we could probably change um, and make a material impact. Yeah, uh, I, I, thank you for bringing that up, I, I think speaking about what happens to what has to happen in again air quotes the process to change is first and foremost recognizing that you can't opt people out you have to opt them in be make them a part of that because exactly what you stated that individual did they did she go on to to go on into a leadership position later on she did and yeah. she and she <laughs> She specifically said um, part of it was me offering it to her and her turning it down and thinking about the potential that she could do it. Because one of the other things we talked about actually um, is, you know, in leadership, sometimes people look at you like you are someone different, like you have different skills that that it requires something different from what you have. I mean, everyone's heard the the thing about, you know, if you look at a job application and they're listing five criteria and a woman will have four of them and say, you know, I'm not qualified for this position. Um, and men may oftentimes apply for it even without the full qualifications. And so to say, look, you can do it, <laughs> you know, you can do it. You have these skills and qualifications. And to also say, like, I think in my position as a leader, like I am just like you, <laughs> you know, um, that connection of these are the same things that I struggle with. Um, I see potential in you. Um, you cannot um, underestimate how impactful that is for the people hearing it. Well, and I mentioned people seeing it too. Is has your experience as you've advanced in leadership, uh, you know, people saying, "I see myself in you," and therefore, and therefore also, maybe subconsciously or fully consciously, going, well, "Wait a second, Nicole's been <laughs> been advancing for a number of years." Like, what has your experience been in terms of the representation piece? Because we we discuss it, and people are like, "Oh, it matters," but. What's your experience been in terms of being in, you know, senior leadership positions and how that representation has affected people that have been attracted to the various organizations you've represented? 
it is hugely meaningful. I mean, it's not, it's like one of those things that I still don't think of myself as like the representative, but um, very much so, you know, when I, when I lead team meetings, when I sit down with physicians, people come up to me and talk to me. Um, when, you know, I talk about being in the boardroom and being the only woman there, but I have, you know, have my techniques on how do I make my voice heard? And I share those openly with people and they start to see, um, you know, that, this is something that they can do. You know, one of my, um, I think is my strengths is I can be very open and vulnerable with people. And I sort of joke around at where I have run into problems. I openly talk about my kids. I, you know, talk about the, the struggle um, that I have in a lot of these arenas. And I think that normalizes it. I think it makes people see that um, this is something that can be accomplished and they're not putting up barriers in their mind when they see someone who is a, you know, normal human being. I have kids, you know, I, um, uh, you know, I am working with all the same things that they are, but also doing things that they want to do. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, thank you for that. And I think it, it is a reminder because, yeah, you don't want to have to be the representative in in many instances, but recognizing that uh, it's still an opportunity and it's it's an opportunity for your organization to be able to attract a, a additional leaders um, and in your case, particularly um, women leaders and even more particularly women leaders of color and and just reinforce like yes, you know you can and you can here as well. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So I did exactly what I do with everybody else, which is I uh, come after you with a whole bunch of questions and ask you a whole bunch of stories. So um, I'm gonna pause for a second and just uh, let you ask Greg uh, as, uh, well, you may or may not be aware, just open it up and whatever question you have, um, I, I gotta answer it. And I don't know that I've had great answers and most people have come with some pretty, pretty hard ones. <laughs> so I'm ready for it. Well, I've been thinking ahead on this one. So, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we think about this work on um, DEI and health equity, um, right now it feels like a little bit of a buzzword, right? Um, health equity, it's kind of one of those things. But there's been a lot of work going on for years and years and years um, in a lot of these areas, mentorship and sponsorship and work-life balance and how do you support women um, in these areas. And I'm curious what you think is sort of the future of DEI and health equity. Are we going to still just need to focus on we, what we know are the kind of fundamental build, uh, building blocks because we haven't achieved them yet and we know they work? Or do you see this going in a different direction that may ultimately be more effective than what we've done before? So it's a great question and, and uh, as expected, a super difficult one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, so it, it's, it's interesting from my perspective that so many people, DEI right now, and I think it's in part a buzz phrase because with everything that has happened in the last five to seven years, particularly um, when it comes to, um, well, it was with COVID, it was with, you know, engagement with, and encounters with police, it was in a variety of areas, became this hyper-consciousness, and it was about them being the moral thing to do. I'm actually not going to debate that. 
Mm-hmm. My belief, however, is America is America, and this is a capitalist <laughs> country. And you know, when people say follow the money, that's what ends up happening. And it's been very interesting and quite honestly compelling to me uh, in particular about watching organizations that have been ahead of the curve with respect to DEI because of two, two biggest components. Number one is there is increasing data <laughs> really reinforcing that a diverse workforce is one that's typically more engaged, less turnover. Diverse leadership has led to improved financial outcomes. And third, that, and particularly in healthcare, that decreasing these disparities that have been widely known for over 60 years is going to ultimately save the healthcare system, hospitals, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the government, it's going to save money. And while that's kind of a downer to say because you know I as as somebody who firmly believes in DEI you want to puff your chest out and like this is the right thing to do <laughs> it is and yes. it's the right thing to do for your business whatever yeah. your business is and in particular it's important for healthcare as we continue to evaluate healthcare institutions on their clinical outcomes and the more that we dig in and can you know, clearly state, yes, you're gonna get better care here. It's gonna be for lower cost and higher quality. The, that's what I think the, fu- like the real future or immediate future is, is people sort of recognizing, why didn't we get this before? Mm-hmm. It's in our best interest to make sure that we are taking these initiatives along because we're just gonna do better. And so mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's not sexy. But it's it is my belief is that like people are going to look up and go, I you know I there as you said the, the light bulb moment of oh we should be able to figure this out so those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I was reading an interesting article the other day um, about you know taking it to the next step of you know we talk about the business case which again i agree with you it's super important um but how do we take that next step from not just bringing people and diverse people on board but how do we actually change the structures so they can make the impact it's not just about being in the room it's how do we actually take those perspectives into consideration how do we make things operate differently because that's actually how you impact change. It's exactly. not because you look different, it's because you make the operations different in a fundamental way that is more effective at meeting people's needs. Well, and it's and and again, you're you're stating that and it was one of my next questions for you are like structural elements that you would want to see changed. Like what, you know, I, I think, you know, I I appreciate people sort of saying the system was built this way and you know, and you have to blow up the system. Well, maybe that is the case, but maybe the case is also like just evaluating and going, that's not built for me as a woman in, mm-hmm. in healthcare. And and I, I think it is that different perspective in calling it out and saying, you're, that's going to have to change. And these are the reasons why. And by the way, yeah, there is a the the um, uh, always necessary ROI in, in <laughs> to, to be able to deliver that. Are there specific structural elements that you think about 
as, as you're going through? Like, what are elements as you've been in your role that you've really been focused on changing? Um, I'm thinking, um, I think one of the structural elements that I think needs to change, and this isn't necessarily the women in clinical leadership, um, is we've really got to change how we fund medical schools to be able to bring in the diverse um, the diversity of candidates, because it's not only racial diversity, but it's really also um, economic diversity is huge. And simply the way it is funded, um, we're even starting from the beginning. So we've made a lot of progress and I am thrilled at <laughs> how far women have come, but there's still so much more room to go. And that's always been kind of one of my things about who are we, who are we selecting, you know, even from the get-go to get into this. Um, I have a, I'm not sure what to change structurally. You know, just like you said, like I, I have been really fortunate. Um, and I think, you know, there's some particulars about me as a person where I felt comfortable walking into my boss's office six months <laughs> pregnant and saying, let's do this. And I don't know everyone would be like that, you know, which I think have made me successful. But I'm trying to think it's so broad. How do we really fundamentally change it? So, um, people can be this successful in the way they want to be. And, and here, here's another question that's just tied to that. I, I kind of wonder, maybe it's not changing structure, but the question I have is like, how do we change maybe the, the hearts and minds of some people? Cause you know, as I talk to people, a lot of people are very much believing in DEI, but I've also mm -hmm. had multiple conversations with people who are really cynical and they're like, oh, so you just mean getting underqualified people to be my boss. There's a lot oh, of people that, that have this really cynical view of it. And I kind of wonder like, how do you, how, how do you change those people? Because they're in all our workplaces. You know, some of them are entry level, some are leaders. But I think that's a huge part of changing the system is, is working on those people. I don't, I don't know, Nicole, how much you, you've thought about some of the, maybe you don't have that extreme of people, but still like impacting oh. those people. Oh, I, did you see my visceral reaction? Like, of course, <laughs> I have completely had that experience. Um, I don't know, because, you know, they talk about the research about like, how do you do like bias mitigation and those sorts of um, trainings? And those are kind of what I see a lot of places doing on a large scale. Um, and I think those sometimes have sort of mixed mixed results depending on how they're done. And I've even seen some research on, you know, the more you focus on it, actually, the more entrenched in their beliefs people become, right? And so, um, you know, it's a really intractable problem when you're thinking about, you know, if this is fundamentally people just think you're taking underqualified people um, just for a diversity token, um, it's offensive, but it's hard to address on a, um, structural level. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts? I I know for me, I, I think the, the, you know, some of the issue, it's it's obviously very difficult to change hearts and minds um, yeah. when uh, pe people have entrenched views. And I, I think um, 
I know some of my problem is I get a little overly aggressive in this and saying that, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're making the assumption that, it, that there are currently qualified people in those <laughs> positions. We may be accepting a mediocrity in another position when we could have very well identified somebody who's not had a historical leadership position because they've been opted out because mm -hmm. people have, you know, their, their, either their expediency or uh, quite honestly, which you, you highlighted, even the experience bias um, that, that goes into it. And so uh, I, I, you know, it's hard when you want to sort of challenge the fundamental assumption of where people are landing to come to those conclusions. Uh, I think it's, you have to have empathy and, and uh, you know, every book that I've read and every article I've read is you have to sort of meet them where they are and then sort of say, here are here are the valid points that you're, you you have. And now, if I can validate that, maybe you can accept some of these other facts, which are, you know, Nicole's points. You know, the women who are going through and women of color who are going through medical school had to get through the same initial screening. They had to land here. Mm -hmm. They had to be able to do all mm -hmm. this stuff. There is nothing inherently that disqualifies them from leadership roles. So the question is, what are we doing structurally that's making it, that's impeding the ability? And what are we doing to not evaluate? And it does take, like, what's wrong with taking the step of saying structurally, no, I'm sorry, we're going to take the step back and we're going to demand that we look at different candidates. Because to your point, Nicole, and, you, and I think it's been highlighted in the, the um, in almost every article around diversity, that slight change in perspective. Yes, you are a human being, but you are coming with different life experience. And quite honestly, everything that you've experienced so far allows you to sort of take a shift in view and go, that's another woman in leadership that or that need, deserves a, a leadership opportunity. And let me tap her because I don't think she knows. Or this right. is another person of color that has the same right. thing. And it's, it's, and yeah, that's difficult to change hearts and minds. But I think, again, um, and anybody who's listened to this podcast knows I spent a whole bunch of time saying, here's the data that <laughs> yeah. makes things yeah. better. <laughs> you know, one other thing I just thought of um, as we're talking about this, especially in medicine, um, there is absolutely a culture of you deserve this because you've been here long enough. And that's how, at least in hospitals, very much, I've been here a long time, I'm ready for department chair, I am ready for chief of staff. And I'm wondering if there's a way that we can value leadership skills, because leadership skills is not based on tenure and experience. It is actually a completely different like subset of, or maybe not subset, it is a completely different set of skills and expertise that needs to be valued differently. Like experience has some weight. You do have to understand clinical medicine, understand the health system, understand how the pieces fit together. But beyond that, you know, it's not your clinical experience that makes you a strong department chair, a strong chief of staff, you know, a pipeline into becoming a chief medical officer of a hospital. And I'm wondering if that's a way that we can address this differently is not just the bias of like, why is this person getting it, but recognize this is what you are good at and this is what someone else is good at and how do we, you know, capitalize on those strengths. And I, I think that's an amazing suggestion because you're right. It is, it is those skills, and maybe people who are 
earlier in their career have those skills and have those skills well enhanced. They may not have had the ch- the opportunity to use them as much, but that level of identification also um, allows for people to go look. You know, again, seeing those skills in somebody who's earlier in their career, identifying them and saying, "I, you look, you need to have X, Y, and Z because mm-hmm. you're next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you, you are absolutely next." I think so. Sergio kind of scratched that this on on the Critical Matters podcast when you talk about like the super skills and ultra skills, and it was almost like. Mm-hmm clinical knowledge and skills, people skills, mm-hmm. and then administrative skills. And you're saying you mm-hmm. kind of needed all three to be really a great doctor. But I think it's more than that than it's, you know, be a leader. Or if you, maybe you're just really great clinician. Maybe you're not an administrator, but you're a people person and you're great clinical knowledge. So maybe you'll always be a frontline clinician and just, you know, mm-hmm. be a fantastic doctor versus someone else who's more administrative and going into that that leadership route. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. I agree with that. Well, Nicole, what I miss there, we, we've discussed a whole bunch of different stories and, uh, and a lot of other aspects of your career. And I know as you and I've had other conversations around this, we probably end up talking for hours. Um, <laughs> but I want to make sure that we don't miss anything that you think is absolutely critical um, to, to cover um, in this super far ranging topic. Yeah, no, I think um, I think the two points that I wanted to get across are what we talked about is, you know, really the importance of people who already are in leadership positions and their ability to, you know, identify um, identify young up and coming leaders. The power of just saying, I see you, I have confidence in you, I see your potential, because that's been hugely impacted on for me and the opt out idea, because again, I'm embarrassed to say how often that thought crosses my mind and I have to stop and say, no, I'm not going to opt that person out. I'm going to give them the opportunity and let them make the decision. Um, I think, I think those were what I think could be really helpful just on an individual basis. Those are fabulous and fabulous places to land because there are concrete ways that not only clinical leaders, but all leaders can really take mm-hmm. uh, advice from and be able to, to move from there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I first want to thank you so much for being here and taking the time. I already know that you have a, a tremendously busy schedule and you're, you're um, uh, taking the time out to join us is uh, fantastic. And then the, the last thing I have to leave off is who would you want to hear on here? And if you know them, can you help us get them? <laughs> <laughs> who do I want? Um, if it's not a who, to... what's a topic to, to explore? Because, you know, the wonderful part about DEI is there's tons of areas to explore it. And you, it, like this, this conversation, you know, dealt with women of color, we dealt with, you know, women in clinical leadership. We talked about leadership in general. Like it's gone all over the place. But where's something that you would love to for us to dial in on? Because you really don't want, as, as particularly in terms of inclusivity, you really don't want Jay and I coming up with all of these topics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you cover a bunch of different categories. I mean, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> um. You know, I think you've hit already a couple of my big ones. I don't have one right now because you've got, you, I know you did mental health. I know you did higher education. I know you did graduate medical education. We've got women. 
Um, I'm going to have to get back to you on this one, if that's okay. That's all right, but we we will hound you because we we we're always looking for our next speakers. And if we don't, and if we hound you, you don't come with an answer, then you're going to have to come back on. I'm just got to tell See? you that. That's <laughs> my secret ploy. You figured it out. <laughs> Well, thank you, Greg. This was so much fun, and I really appreciate um, the opportunity to be here. Well, thanks. Jay, you have anything that you want to wrap up with? Any additional questions or anything else before we let our esteemed guests go? I think I, one last question I have, Nicole, um, is is there any advice or encouragement you'd give? You've talked a lot, um, those two points for, for leaders to think of, but for mm -hmm. maybe, you know, young women, um, color not, um, but what they can do or encouragement on their careers and moving up may some that might feel discouraged or maybe didn't have some of the advantages you had of great mentors. I mean, I would just say, don't let it stop you. Um, just really don't let it stop you because again, I actually have endless more stories and I know we're running out of time, but it's, you know, if it's something that you feel strongly about and you feel passionately about to speak up and keep going and it actually, um, you know, I was I was shocked, right, when I stormed into my boss's office and he said, OK, right. You know, and then um, and then I ultimately left that organization and, and joined Sound Physicians um, and it felt much different. Right. And it was a place where I felt welcomed and um, was supported in leadership and had multiple fantastic bosses and mentors there who supported me. And so, you know, if you're like if you're in a situation and you are not feeling that you have the opportunities that you want, that you're not getting the support that you want, um, either fight for it or change it if you can. Because, um, you know, I think it's easy to think that everywhere is the same. It It isn't. You know, I've worked in a ton of hospitals. Um, every hospital has a different culture, you know, and find the culture that fits, find the culture that appreciates you and just keep going. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that advice. And an awesome place to land. So thank you again, mm -hmm. Nicole, for being here. Have a wonderful day and please join us for our next episode in a couple of weeks. Take care. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a sound physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.